Hey, how you doing? So we have a sponsor for the show. Um, it's me. So please, I'm very close with this sponsor. Uh, we actually see each other naked every day, and sometimes we weep together in fetal position in the shower. But most importantly, this sponsor, me, is an author and a screenwriter and teaches writing classes. So let's indulge him for the moment. I have two writing classes coming up, one on campus at UCLA in April and one online called Beginning Novel Writing that starts on March 4th. If you'd like to register, the March 4th class is limited to 10 students. Go to www.tonyduchesne.com. That's www.tonyduchesne.com to sign up for the six-week course online, Beginning Novel Writing. And now, on with the show. I'm Lee Goldberg, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And that was Lee Goldberg doing the Alan Goldberg voice. Or I can do it like myself. Hi, I'm Lee Goldberg, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. We can we see. I, I might be able I can pull it off. All right, so. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Lee Goldberg. He's the author of Killer Thriller, the sequel to True Fiction. Our hero, Ian Ludlow, is mixed up in lots of uh, real crime, but he's also a crime writer. Is that, did I get all that right, Lee? No, not quite. He, okay. he's, a, he's a spy novelist. And he writes about international espionage, and he finds himself in the middle of an international uh, espionage situation. Which, of course, he's totally ill-equipped to handle because he's not a spy. He's a guy like me. Yeah. Which, um, I was trying to say exactly that, but you say it so much better because you've actually written the thing. This is I'm paid to come up with clever things, which is why I'm totally incoherent right now. <laughs> so, okay. Now, I was thinking of how do I do the Lee Goldberg bio? And then I, I, I was like, I pulled your bio off of uh, Amazon. And then I was just like, well, "That's gonna take half the show." So <laughs> there's just so there's so much um, uh, so much that you've done. First off, can we talk about the first book you wrote with Ludlow as the as as the pen name? I I love that story. I just I was as I was researching. <laughs> well, I was a college student, and I, I love mysteries and I love thrillers, and I wanted to write them. And I had a professor named Lou Perdue who's writing those big, bulky Robert Ludlow-esque conspiracy thrillers. And we became friends, and he would show me his manuscripts, and I'd give him my advice and opinion as if I knew a damn thing about anything. And one day his publisher came to him and asked him if he'd write a men's action adventure series. That's sort of the male equivalent of the Harlequin romance. They don't really exist anymore, but you used to be able to find them at finer 7-Elevens and gas stations and, and grocery stores around the country with titles like The Destroyer, The Executioner, The Drooler, The Defecator, The Nosebleeder. You know, they all had E-R-O-R at the end, and some guy with incredible pecs with a giant gun in his hand with explosions in the background and women with big hooters, and people gobbled these up, or men gobbled them up. And, and my professor, Lou Perdue, said he wasn't hungry enough stupid enough or desperate enough to write one of these things but he knew somebody who was and he recommended me so I wrote an outline and some sample chapters and much to my shock uh, the publishing company picked it up and you know, Lee Goldberg is not the kind of name you want on a men's action adventure novel I knew that wouldn't draw people to the book so I came up with the pseudonym Ian Ludlow Ian for Ian Fleming, Ludlow, so I'd be on the shelf right next to Robert Ludlum. I also figured people would go, Ian Ludlow. You know, I think I read something by him. It wasn't bad. And I was very fortunate, very lucky, actually, that my book came out the same week that Bernard Getz blew away some muggers on a New York subway train. Vigilantes were hot. My novel reached the top of the bestseller list. New World Pictures bought the movie rights, hired me to write the script, and my screenwriting career was born. I didn't get back to writing books um, I think for another 10 years or so after that. But I thought when I, when I came up with the idea to do this series of books about a writer of action-adventure novels who finds himself in the middle of an action-adventure plot, I thought why not use that name for the hero? Because I am essentially writing about myself and there are some people who will enjoy the, the in-joke. When I say some people I mean three. But you know, it amused me. That's the important thing. 
And I, I mean, right away, I, first off, I was laughing from the first paragraph. And then the, I think even on the first page, how uh, Ludlow came up with the TV series Hollywood and Vine, uh, half plant man. And what was it? Half, <laughs> half, half man, half plant, all cop. <laughs> Which I want to see that series. Well, Is there a way we can do it? You are laughing. But for a book I did back in 1995 called My Gun Has Bullets, I came up with a fake TV series called Franken-Cop. The bits and pieces of 30 dead cops stitched back together to make one incredible police officer. Which, I, I came up with that as something that would never, ever, ever get made. This season, CBS has a pilot called Frankenstein about Frankenstein as a cop. So it would not surprise me if next season we saw Hollywood and the Vine on, on CBS. He's so fruitful, this cop. He's uh, he's fruitful in his endeavors. No, that no, that vines aren't fruit. Well, I, I, I don't know. See, I'm trying to keep up to your funny, and that's the problem. This is what's horrifying to me: is my book wasn't meant to be funny. It really disturbs me that people are finding it funny. I, well, I, the, I joking. Oh Jesus! <laughs> I'm joking. You scared me there for a second. I was like, oh well, thank you for this. <laughs> You can't see this in Radioland, but his eyes bugged out, his hair went gray, and he lost control of his bladder and his bowels. But otherwise, he took it in stride. And it stinks here right now. <laughs> They're going to throw us out of this bar. But maybe not, judging by some of the people sitting here. Oh, it's a derelict place, isn't it? It is pretty derelict. No, I, yeah, when, when we walked in, I was just like, all these bikers, I don't know if we're going to have to throw down or what. Luckily, they're all wearing yarmulkes, so I feel very much at home. So that's just, I love that story. That's how you got into writing, uh, to becoming a screenwriter. You know, it's really funny. Years ago, like many years ago, I bought your book about writing the pilot. And I've had it on my shelf for years. And then now I'm friends with your brother, Todd Goldberg. And then it didn't click until about five years ago that I had his brother's book on my shelf for many years. You're slow, aren't you? <laughs> oh, very, yes. <laughs> but um, I... Uh, so the, um, <laughs> see how slow I got. <laughs> when you tell me I'm slow, I go, <laughs> I get really slow. <laughs> but all right, back to matters at hand. Monk, you how many novelizations of the Monk series did you write? You know, you think you'd know how many you've done when you've written. I, I think I did fifteen of them. Fifteen. I think it was either 13 or 15. I can't remember. I know that fans were upset because I ended on an odd number. But I, I wrote a lot of, of Monk. And they weren't novelizations. They were original novels based on the TV series, which I also wrote for. And, in fact, the first book I wrote became an episode of the show. And I wrote that, too. Um, in fact, it's a funny story. I wrote this book called Mr. Monk Goes to the Firehouse. And uh, Andy Breckman, who created Monk, said this would make a great episode of the show. And I said, because it's already written. He said, exactly. But he wanted to make a couple of small changes. And I said, okay, great. Like what? What if Mr. Monk is blind? And I said, Andy, that, that's not a small change. That's a huge change. It changes everything. No, no, everything's the same except he's blind. Well, to make a long story short, the book was called Mr. Monk Goes to the Firehouse. The episode is called Mr. Monk Can't See a Thing because he's blind. All right, so the episode comes out. And me and my publisher started getting letters and emails from outraged fans accusing me of plagiarizing the classic Monk episode, Mr. Monk Can't See a Thing. So we actually had to reissue the book with a disclaimer at the front that said, the book came first. Lee Goldberg wrote both of them. So you might find some similarities, but people are really upset. They thought I had ripped off the show. You know how rad that is, though, that... that the fan base gets that upset where you know that there's something going. I'm so used to rabid fan bases getting upset. I did a series called Sequest, and I came on Sequest in the uh, third season. And I brought back a character that had been in season one. And when the episode aired, I got <laughs> letters from fans. In fact, I don't know if you know how much you know about the Sequest, but it's this giant phallic submarine in the future with Roy Scheider as captain. And um, instead of the United Federation of Planets, they're with the United Earth Oceans, the UEO. So when I wrote this episode, I get a letter on UEO stationery 
from a woman calling herself the Grand Admiral of the UEO, informing me that my episode was wrong, that you know, everything I said about this character in the episode was wrong because he'd been alive in the fanfic for the last two years and that I should have read the fanfic first to find out the truth about this character and I needed to correct it right away. That's how crazy these people can be. And they don't understand the, you're in a writer's room, you're working your ass off to just get a script done and to, uh, to get into production and it's just everything's so nuts. Why would you read fanfic? Their, their fanfic doesn't count. It's pointless. It's meaningless. They don't even have the right to write it. They don't have the copyright. To th- so I told her, you know, no, the character doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. We can do whatever we want with it. And by the way, the UEO is a fictional organization. You're the Grand Admiral of nothing. Uh, we don't have to look at the fanfic first. Just, no, no. The fanfic is canon. It's canon because you write for money and we write for love. You can't make this stuff up. I think there's a series there. <laughs> I just see the wackos already in that. Oh, I wrote a book based on it. I wrote a book called uh, Dead Space. Actually, the original title was Beyond the Beyond. That's another story. It came out as Beyond the Beyond, and when the book fell out of print some years later, I republished it as Dead Space. But it was all inspired by my experience on, on Sequest dealing with those insane fans. But it's not just a science fiction thing. We had some crazy fans on Diagnosis Murder, too. Oh, yeah. and cause, so the, what was the premise of Diagnosis? Now, that was working with Dick Van Dyke. How, well, let's go back to that. How was it working with Dick Van Dyke? Oh, he's an absolute pleasure. He, he, he was just incredible. And, and the thing is, when you work with somebody like that every day, you forget they're a television legend and a, and a star. And he was just that guy I work with. And um, my daughter was discovering Mary Poppins. I think she was like four years old or something. And I said, how would you like to meet Bert the Chimney Sweet? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I'm down to the set and said, Dick, do you mind if I bring my daughter down to meet you? She just discovered Mary Poppins. So, no, of course, bring her down. So I bring my daughter down, and she didn't recognize him, you know, because he had the mustache and his hair had gone uh, white. So he starts doing the whole Chim Chim Cheree song and dance for my daughter, just trying to get a glimmer of recognition from her. And, and while this was going on, it dawned on me, holy crap, I work with Dick Van Dyke. Why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> Someone get a camera quick. Um, and my daughter was terrified. She was hiding behind me. Um, I took a picture, though, of her with Dick so I can embarrass her now years later with it. And I do. But you, you, just, you, you forget when you're working with someone like that every day who they are. So when you're in the television business and you're on the soundstage and you're, you're doing a show, they aren't stars anymore. They're co-workers. And, you're trying to get you're trying to get the every work done, which, from what I've seen, is just okay. Time we got to get to the next. We got to get to the next. It's it, that seems to be the thing. Yeah, I mean, you're not there intimidated or starstruck. You're just trying to get the do- the job done. And my partner, my TV writing partner, William Rapkin, and I were running the show, so it's it's not like we were there as Google-eyed fans. You know, we're trying to do a job. And you try, and you're also answering to a network and to other people. Yeah, of course. Though I do remember there was I can't remember what the what the situation was, but there was some time in my office where Dick and I were having a disagreement about something. What you have, you know, even married couples have disagreements. And there was like a moment of silence and I said, It just dawned on me. I'm Rob Petrie and you're Alan Brady. If you'd gone back and told me when I was a kid because, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Rob Petrie. And then to find myself being Rob Petrie with Dick Van Dyke was, you know, every now and then I, w- I would pinch myself and realize how lucky I was to have my you know, childhood dream come true. In fact, what I'm doing now is my childhood dream come true. I'm, I was writing books when I was eight, nine years old. Oh, yeah, I have the manuscript still in my garage. Wonderful thrillers. I remember I had one about a guy from the future who was born in an underwater sperm bank. Now, I don't know why it was underwater or how you make deposits. Somehow, I just thought that was very cool. It was sort of like the Terminator if he was born because someone jerked off underwater into a sperm bank. And this wasn't when you were eight. This was a little older. <laughs> a little older than eight, yeah. I was going to be like, wow, you had, you had a lot of... I wrote, like, rip-offs of The Saint. I had a thing called The Perfect Sinner that was basically Simon Templar. I mean, I... I, I I was practicing to do what I'm doing now. And I had another great way of practicing. My mother was a journalist. She wrote a society column for the Contra Costa Times in Northern California. 
and she covered parties and other social events and and she was off in Santa Barbara with some guy she met and got fogged in. She couldn't make it back to write her column. And she said, Lee, you've got to sneak into the newspaper. My reporter's notebooks are in my drawer. You can't let anyone see. You've got to write my column for Monday or I'm screwed. So I went in and I wrote my mother's column in her voice. No one noticed. And so my mom got back. I said, oh, your job's so easy. Anybody with a barely a high school education could do it because I was a freshman in, in high school. Well, my mom got me for that. She took vacations all the time. She would just dump all of her reporter's notebooks in my lap and say, these are the deadlines, get to it. And I thought I was being horribly taken advantage of, that it was unfair, it was cruel. I owe her a debt because she taught me how to write in someone else's voice, which is really important when you're in television. You have to write the way the creator of the show writes, the way he voices these characters. And it served me well in writing television tie-ins, you know, same thing, having that ability. And, and it also has helped me capture the voice of a woman when I was writing the Monk books there from the point of view of Monk's assistant, Natalie. And um, I have a novel coming out in September called Lost Hills about the youngest female member of the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department Homicide Division, and it's a woman. And so I have a female protagonist. And, and I've been told by everyone except my wife that I write women really well. Why does your wife disagree? I, my wife says, I'm going to do her, I can't do her French accent. I'm going to do my version of it, which is Inspector Clouseau. But she says, why can't you write, be like the women you write about? You know, they understand this and you don't understand a damn thing. She's more upset that you don't have the emotional um, bandwidth of your characters is that, or, or the emotional um, intuition. That or, or even the common sense. It's like. She really likes it when I write the monk books from Natalie's point of view and the way a woman thinks. She's like, if you can write that, how come you're so clueless in real life? You know, it's like, fiction's a lot easier than real life, as, as Ian Ludlow discovers in my books. Yeah, oh yeah. And then, so, do you speak French, too? No. You'd think, you'd think after 30 years of being married to a French woman and having my entire in-laws, you know, that whole side of my family, not speaking a word of English, that I would have picked up some. But, you know, there's a great advantage to having a relationship with your father-in-law and mother-in-law that just consists of you grinning, going, bonjour. They have no reason to hate you or discuss politics with you or whatever. Um, does your wife ever get mad and then like get mad at you in French so you don't know what she's saying? No, I don't lead a Lucy Ricardo, Ricky okay. Ricardo life. Because well, no, one of my ex-girlfriends I lived with was Cuban, so when she would get mad at me, she would start screaming in Spanish because that's how she she would speak faster in Spanish. I knew I was getting reamed. Uh, the, only, the only time we have that issue is when I'm in France and she's speaking to everybody in French. She forgets that I don't speak French and she'll be talking to me in French. Or if, if she wakes up in the middle of the night or I come into bed late or whatever, she'll talk to me in French when she's already in the French you know, frame of mind. Um, and when she comes back from France after being there for a long time, her accent is really heavy. And I can't understand my own wife. The, um, what I, now, what I love about not knowing enough French and being in France is everyone sounds way more intelligent than me, but I know they're probably talking about the stupidest stuff I would disagree with. Well, here's the thing. I don't speak French, but I understand a lot more than I let on. So when my wife is saying in French, my husband's so fat and stupid, he has no idea I'm screwing the pool man, I just grin like an idiot. She thinks I don't know. That's a great weapon to have yeah. there. It's a terrific weapon. Have you used that in your uh, fiction as well, or, or on a TV show? Or Haven't used it in my fiction. No, I don't want. I, in fact, I regret oh. now revealing that I have this superpower. Do I have to cut that part out now? No, don't cut out. My wife never listens to my interviews. Yeah, okay. I, she want, I'm not on her radar. I'm sure. <laughs> That's not. It's not you on your radar. She's heard all my crap before. She doesn't need to hear it again. Oh. I have a hard time listening to my. I, I try not to listen to them because I get too self-conscious, and then I just I can't listen more than once. So I edit, and that's it. I, I don't listen to my own interviews either. Yeah, I mean, and even um, like working on TV shows, where are you able to like sit back and watch them if you see them in repeats, or or does it bring back like, oh man, that just that was that was a bad work day? Or it's interesting to watch shows years after I've done them. I still remember when I see them, oh, God, I remember that edit, or I remember that. But sometimes I can appreciate them more years later. Or in some cases, I watch them going, oh, my God, that's 
awful. What was I thinking? In fact, I remember, you mentioned Dick Van Dyke. We had a big fight over the scoring of a particular episode. I was adamant that the, that the score was great, the music. And he was vehemently against it, and, and you know, I had the final word. And I saw that particular episode in reruns recently. I realized he was absolutely right. It's awful. What was I thinking? Was I on crack? In retrospect, maybe I was just so busy. The last thing I wanted to do was to go back and rescore an episode or get into an argument with, with Dick where he then felt he could do this on every episode. I mean, there may have been other pressures on me at the time that made me dig in my heels. But Dick Van Dyke, if you're listening, and I know you're not, you were right. You were right. That score sucked. When in that situation have you ever got in touch with someone uh, that you worked with on a show and went, oh, man, that was a bad one. I'm, I'm sorry, or, or, or like retouched base with anyone that you worked on? Or Why would I do that? If they haven't noticed, why would I tell oh, them? Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I, no. I'm not saying someone Dick Van Dyke level. I'm saying just someone that you worked with like, like on an equal level or like maybe even oh, your writing partner. My, my writing partner, Bill and I, yes, of course. We go over this stuff all the time. I called him up after I saw that episode, and I went, Bill, you know, we were wrong. And I should say, by the way, when I say I with Dick Van Dyke, when I was running a show and all that, it's always with Bill Rabkin. You know, Bill and I, our TV career was together up until five or ten years ago. Um, it was an amicable split. Don't get me wrong. We just, we're still the best of friends. All that, but when I did Diagnosis Murder and Sequest and all those shows, I did them with Bill. And how did you and Bill meet? And how did you become uh, partners in uh, crime, essentially? It goes back to that vigilante novel I wrote when I was in college. So when they that, that, that was called uh, Three Fifty Seven Vigilante by Ian Ludlow. When it came out, and Bernard Getz blew away those people on the subway train, and New World Pictures came calling. New World didn't want me writing the script, but I had a good agent, and my agent put in the contract that I had to write the script. I get I had first that it got to me first. So the studio put an outrageous deadline on there. He had to deliver. I had to deliver a script in like three weeks because they wanted to burn me off and hire a real screenwriter. Well, Bill and I were on the UCLA Daily Bruin together, and he was a graduate student in their screenwriting program. And I said, I've never written a script. Why don't you and I do this together? We wrote the script together, and New World, to their shock, loved it and kept us on for multiple revisions. And, and the movie never got made, but that's how our partnership was born. Then we wrote a spec episode of Spencer for Hire, which we sent to Spencer, which they bought and shot and hired us to write four more. And then we did, we did the whole freelance writer thing, working on a bunch of TV shows. Before, um, I can't remember what our first staff job was, Murphy's Law, a show with George Siegel, created by a guy named Michael Gleason, who did Remington Steel. And he took us under his wing and taught us so much. He was really our mentor. And then we just went from show to show and uh, eventually ended up running. We were supervising producers on shows like The Cosby Mysteries and Sequest and... Um, Look at me up on IMDb. <laughs> you, can, you can find it there. A whole bunch of shows. Uh, but probably the show we were most identified with and worked on the longest was Diagnosis Murder, which is usually the show you hit on your way out of the business. I remember, I remember being on that show. I think I was 30 years old and going, oh, crap. How did I, I ruin my career already? I'm already on the show that's the door hitting your ass on the way out of the business. And I figured, we figured, Joe, Bill and I, as long as our career is over and we're on the last show we'll ever be on, we might as well do whatever the hell we want. And we did. We, we did all these wonderful episodes where we brought back all these TV spies and we brought back Mike Connors' Mannix. And we had so much fun. And the show t jumped into the top 20 and became this huge hit, which we were then able to parlay into other jobs. So it didn't become our last job in the business. It became um, our launch pad to other jobs. Unfortunately, all of our shows after that were 13 episodes and out or six episodes and out. And you know, we managed to kill our career on our own without having it killed by diagnosis murder. But, but usually anyone associated with diagnosis murder, that was their last stop. They never went on to do another series. You, know, you were finished. You knew if you were running diagnosis murder, you were, your next stop would be the motion picture home or the graveyard. The, um, you brought up two good points there. And it, it's you. You went in as like a baptism by fire because the studio gave you a gave you a deadline where they were like, "We're going to blow this guy off," and you came at him swinging with with something. And I I just love hearing those stories of how people get in where it's just like, oh, you know, you think, 
I could never do this. And that's when you have to go, no, this is it. We're going. You know. Well, I didn't have those. I didn't have big balls. I had naivete and desperation and stupidity. I was only 19 or 20 years old. Um, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And in the spec episode of Spencer for Hire, that was insane how that happened. We wrote it as a spec, which is what you do to break into TV. You write a spec episode of a show. But um, we had an agent who wasn't an agent. She was a secretary for a TV agent. And she didn't know better. And she sent our spec Spencer to Spencer. You never do that. You never send the spec to the producer of the show because all they're going to see is everything you got wrong. You send it to somebody else so they can see that you captured the voice. So if you write a spec, you know, CSI, you don't send it to CSI. You send it to NCIS or Castle or something. So they re- look at it like a viewer and they go, oh, this reads like an episode of the show. They, they captured the pace, the way they tell stories. They captured the voice. If they can do that for that series, they can do it for mine. You never send it to the show you spec. Well, they, they did. Or she did, I should say. And as it turned out, they were in a tight spot. They had a script that fell through for some reason. They were looking at a, a weekend where they have to bang out a script in two days. And they were looking at their stack of, of submissions. And on the spine of ours, it said Spencer for Hire. And the producer of the show, William Robert Yates, who since passed away, I think, took the script out of the stack, intrigued, read it, and called us up and said, we'd like to shoot your script on Monday, if that's okay with you. Do you want us to do any revisions? No, no, we like it the way it is, and we'd like to hear what else you have in mind. So they bought it and shot it as we wrote it, and then hired us to do a bunch more. So our, our career was born. It was really a fluke. It's, it's not how I'd recommend anybody else try to break into television. At the same time, you were there, you, were, you had the knowledge, you, you, were, you were putting in the work. I mean, if, that, if you didn't write that spec, then you wouldn't have gotten there. And Oddly enough, that spec was about a, uh, a complete fraud who writes a vigilante novel. And he's in a bookstore when he gets, uh, someone tries to kill him, and Spencer gets shot in the ass. And runs around with a bullet in his butt. And here I am telling the same story 30 years later, just showing I have one story to tell. That's it. I mean, one trick pony. Well, you, have, well, you definitely have a strong voice. So with, the, um, with this series, we're, we're on the book two. Now, how many books do you plan for um, our, our friend, Mr. Ledlow? I plan to write as many as people are willing to read. I am writing the third one right now. And then we'll see when how the book I'm doing, how Killer Thriller, which just came out, how it performs and what pre-orders are like for the third book, Fake Truth, and if it's strong, then odds are I'll start writing a fourth one before the third one comes out. As long as the sales merit it, I'll keep doing it. That's cool. What's um, what's it like, I mean, because like writing like 15 or so um, Monk books, what's it like to stay in the head of a character like that for such a long time, that with, with such a stretch? Well, I'm used to doing that in television. I mean, we did... You know, 25 episodes a season of Diagnosis Murder. That's something I'm very comfortable with. The challenge with the Monk books was I wasn't competing with myself. I was competing with a TV show that was doing 18 episodes a season. So I was trying to come up with ideas they didn't already explore on the TV show and keep up with changes they were doing on the show that I had to reflect in my book. That was the challenge. Um, and I, I reached a point, again, I... I know it sounds weird. I can't remember how many books I did, but I believe it was 15. Where I said, you know, I've said everything I can possibly say about the show. And the show had ended. I think I did three books or four books after the series was over and really made it my own. But I really had nothing more to say. And and quite frankly, I didn't, didn't want to be locked in writing about a character I didn't create in a franchise I didn't own. The, you know, the, one of the joys of writing the Ian Ludlow novels is their mind. I can do whatever I want. I'm not answerable to anybody. And that's cool. So, um, and when you're working between, because uh, it seems like you started out on the screen. Well, well, you started out as columnist for your mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go back to that because you're from Walnut Creek. I know your brother. Um, are you an A's fan or a Giants fan? I don't cover sports at all. I mean, as soon as I say cover, excuse me, I don't follow sports at all. But you should know that, not sure you should know, but I, I should tell you that I put myself through college as a freelance journalist, covering the entertainment industry for Newsweek, the LA Times Syndicate, the San Francisco Chronicle, UPI, individual magazines. So I, I thought I was going to be a journalist if things didn't work out with um, 
fiction. And I still look at things like a journalist. And my father was a reporter as well. My father was a television anchorman. He talked like this his entire life, even in casual conversation. And he had the same insincere smile that you at home can't see, but that Tony can, whether he was on camera or off. And my uncle was a disc jockey. Can I ask, how did he tell you about the birds and the bees? Lee, here's where children come from. I mean, he talked like this all the time. Please pass the salt. And when he laughed, he laughed like this. <laughs> so you never knew if he found you amusing or not. Now, you're laughing because we've only been doing this for 15 seconds. But imagine if it was your entire life. So I would say, Dad, could you please talk normally? I am talking normally. Why do you say that? And it's not just my dad. I've met other television journalists, and years after they've retired, they all talk like the camera is still on them. And um, I should, there's an anecdote I was going to tell you, but no, I, I better not <laughs> about somebody that's who'd be embarrassed. But you know, there, there are people walking around who are journalists who, who always, TV journalists who always feel as if there's a camera on them, and even stop to do television breaks, like. You'll be talking, though. We're talking about Lee's book, Killer Thriller. It's noon. You know, it's like, yeah, I know what time it is. I know what we're talking about. I'm here with you. Why are you doing that? It's like, Sorry, force of habit. <laughs> yeah, you're, though he's, and then even at the dinner table, he's like, now let's go to Lee where the salt is. Lee, can you pass the salt? You, you joke, but it's, it's not that far away. <laughs> I grew up in Millbrae. So that's the that, um, for some I don't know I brought up the sports thing because I feel like people when we grew up on the peninsula we were as growing up as kids we were Giants fans and then but if you were East Bay you were A's fans I I don't that that's what was going through my head when I heard Walnut Creek. Well, my father was uh, anchorman on KPIX Channel Five in San Francisco. Then later he was news director for KTVU. Then he moved up to Northern uh, to Oregon and was at KATU in Portland and a bunch of other stations before he transitioned. Transition. He got aged out of the television business and started doing um, advertisements for local car dealerships and stuff that would get on TV. He'd be like a, a small town advertising agency, essentially. So he was still using the television voice and apparently was occasionally was also on camera, you know, selling used cars or appliances or what have you. That's funny. What, and what about your kids? Did do you, are your kids pursuing um, like uh, literary uh, or anything like that? No. Uh, I love my daughter. She, I don't think she's ever read anything I have written. Really? And I think she's 23. And I think the only stuff of mine she's seen are a couple episodes of Monk, because she was a Monk fan. But I did a movie in Germany a few years ago, and she had a cameo in it. She, she did a walkthrough. But also, um, there was a flashback where the heroine uh, remembered something in childhood. My daughter did the voice. So the only reason she watched that movie was because she was in it. But otherwise, my family takes very little interest in my work. Yeah. Which is hilarious because, I, you know, like me, if I was growing up and you were my dad, I would, I would think I would be going, Dad, can I come with you to work today? Dad, can I do this? But at the same time, the reality of it, you know, my dad was a mechanic and I wasn't going, Dad, can I come to you yeah. with work today? Because it's probably about the same, uh, same drudgery of <laughs> daily you know. No, the only person really that follows my work and vice versa is me and my brother. You know, we talk about each other's books all the time and what the artistic issues we're having or business issues. We, we talk constantly about our work, even though we write very different kinds of stuff. I mean, Todd and I are both crime writers, but he writes literary fiction and I write more mainstream, uh, superficial crap. No, it's not crap, but I'm, I'm being self-effacing. I'm, I'm being self-effacing. I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be literary. I'm trying to entertain. I'm, I'm trying to take people away from their problems, from their jobs. I don't believe that misery is an escape. Todd's early books tended to have a lot of misery in them. And I said, you, know, you, know, you might want to have a protagonist in one of your books who isn't anally raped. Just, a, just a, a thought you might want to keep in the back of your mind as you plot your next book. And also, you and Todd were on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. Was that last year? It was two years ago. It was great, a great surprise. It was a thrill. I was number one, and Todd was number five or six. But to be fair to Todd, this book had already been out, I think, two or three weeks. But it was great. And also, to be fair, Todd and I didn't get there alone. 
I was holding on to Janet Ivanovitz's coattails, and Todd was holding on to Brad Meltzer's coattails. I co-authored five books with Janet, and Todd co-authored a book with Brad Meltzer. And the book I co-authored with Janet debuted at number one, and Todd's was there too. But it was still great that we were both on the New York Times bestseller list in the top ten the same week. It was like we both dreamed of being on the New York Times bestseller list. It never occurred to us we'd be there together. And uh, it made the news, and Publishers Weekly had an article with the headline, Sibling Revelry. I mean, they, they were very, they, they couldn't remember a time when that ever happened before, when two brothers had been um, on the New York Times bestseller list in, in the top ten at the same time. And then co-writing with Janet, what's that experience like? <clears throat> I'm sorry, does it, is it, is it, do you take from your TV experience, but it's more intimate, or how does that work? Well, the only thing I took from my TV experience is that I have no problem collaborating. I have no ego involved in it. Um, unlike people say who collaborate with James Patterson or Clive Cussler, I wasn't a writer for hire that she sought out. Janet and I have been friends for 30 years. We Every time she comes to L.A., we get together for dinner, and we've just been buddies. And she'd had some issues with other co-authors, and... We were having dinner, and she asked me, you know, how do you work with authors? Because, you know, I had, I had a franchise with Amazon called The Dead Man, where I put out a book every month, and I hired writers to write them. And she was fascinated by that. And she was also fascinated by how I wrote the Monk books with, for the Monk franchise with Andy Breckman, and also how I worked with writers on TV shows, and how that whole collaboration worked. But also we were discussing that and we tend to have long dinners when she's in town. We're also discussing what we were love in movies and TV, and weren't seeing on movies in the movie theater or on television anymore. You know, things like the Thomas Crown Affair and It Takes a Thief and Remington Steel and Maverick and Moonlighting, and, and we talked about what we liked and why isn't that happening and why aren't we seeing it in fiction anymore? And it just and we had one of those comfortable silences that longtime friends have had when you're in dinner. And after that, she said. How come we've never written a book together? And I said, you've never asked. She said, well, why don't we write this thing we're talking about now? Why don't we write what we both want to read? So we talked about it, and we amused each other. And, and I went home, and, I'm, and I sent her an email about what we talked about. Assuming in the morning she'd wake up and go, I, was, I had way too much wine. I, you know, I'm, I, I hope you're not offended, but I don't want to write a book. No, but she looked at the email and said, no, I still want to do this. Write it up. So I wrote it up as a, a page or two, and she liked that. So then we bounced around what that first book might be. She called her publisher, and like overnight, we had a four-book deal. And the books were hugely successful. I mean, I think the first one debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And they're always at like number one or number two. The, the, the reviews were fantastic. I had great fun writing them with Janet. I mean, we had such a good time. And I wrote five of them, and... It was, and when there was time to do a sixth, or when it came time to do a sixth, I had already committed myself to writing the book that preceded Killer Thriller and Killer Thriller. And I just, I couldn't make the deadlines work, so I did not write the sixth book. She ended up writing that with her, with her son, Peter. It comes out, I think, in a month. But uh, it, was, it was totally amicable. It just, I, it, I didn't have the time. I couldn't, I couldn't squeeze the book in with the other deadlines I had. But it was great fun. I mean, we had so much fun doing it together. And I think that fun comes across on the page. I think that's why readers respond to that series so strongly. Yeah, <clears throat> you can tell, <clears throat> sorry, uh, you can tell like when, uh, sometimes you can tell when a writer's having fun with it and then when the writer's having fun with it, the reader's going to have fun with it. There's, if you're not having fun with it, sometimes it's, you can tell, it's just, you're just like, well, this, this was a pain for this person. Yeah, yeah. totally. And, and we tried very hard in our books not to mimic Janet's other books. It was I wasn't trying to imitate Janet Ivanovich's voice. And and we came up with a voice that was unique to our series. That wasn't Janet, that wasn't Lee, it was Janet and I. And once we found that voice, it was very easy for both of us to write in it. I'm very curious to see if the book that she wrote with her son adopts that same voice or if she has a totally different voice now that she's doing it with her son as opposed to me. Now, I've... I've heard you use this term a couple times, and it's so, and I want to delve into it. Amicable, because amicable, you've, uh, when you when you've left your partner, you know your partners in writing, you say amicable, amicable, which kind of conveys divorce, which I think 
people don't understand that if you have a writing partner or someone in that much of an intense relationship, it's almost like trying to keep a marriage together, maybe even harder. I don't know. Is it? My wife used to refer to Bill as my other wife. Okay. Um, but what happened with Bill and I is I've always been writing books on, at the same time I was writing scripts. And I also was doing other things, and it just seemed like it, it, it wasn't anything intentional. I just started having other commitments, and my career just started taking me away from the, the partnership. And there was like a two-year period where he and I hardly worked together because I was so busy doing other things. So I, we just sat down at lunch one day and said, you know, let's just make official what sort of happened by evolution or whatever, that we have a separate writing lives. But he and I have come back together. We sort of have, you mentioned divorce. There's like community property. Anybody we worked with before we, and I use this in quotations, we never really broke up, but you know, evolved apart, we do it together. So like he and I broke up, and then uh, my monk books were doing well, and, and they wanted to do an adaptation of one of my monk books. Well, from, in my mind, the monk books came out of the scripts that Bill and I had written for monk. So when they came to me to write an adaptation of my book, I called Bill. Because my feeling was, even though I wrote the book that the script was based on, Monk was community property. And then years later, one of the producers we worked with on Sequest had a series that was in trouble and called me about you know helping him on that show. I called Bill, and we did it together because it's community property. You know, it's you know, so. And, and it was funny. We had, he and I had not written a script together in years, and we sat down. It was as if. It had been five minutes. Nothing had changed. There was no rust. It was not hard at all to get back in the groove of writing together. In fact, it was sort of a relief now that you know, when I carry the burden 100% of myself to have someone who understands me and, and we understand each other that if I'm not getting the scene where it needs to be, he can look at it and go, oh, I know what you're going for and do it and vice versa. So it was, it was nice except for the splitting the money part. Which he didn't understand. He should only get a quarter. <laughs> I, I've grown to like keeping it all. And um, and I really loved when you said that when you talked with uh, Janet and you were going over the uh, at, at dinner, and then you and then you were expecting her to blow you off the next day with your uh, proposal, which is such a normal thing for writers. Because I even if I for me, I mean, and with the people I know, where it's just like. You're like, oh, yeah, you hear a yes, but then you still send it in that this, little pit in your make, gut. But you make it seem as if Janet and I were strangers to each other. Oh, right, yeah, okay. we, we were old friends. If yeah. she blew it off, it wouldn't have hurt our friendship or anything. I was thinking maybe you know she was tired, had a lot to drink. Maybe she just might, you know, like a one-night stand, have second thoughts the next morning, you know, roll over and see the, you know, the naked fat Jew and go, who did I sleep with? You know, um, and it wouldn't have been – I wouldn't have minded. If she said, you know, Lee, I – I thought over and I was I was wrong or I, I said, no it wouldn't probably I mean in fact that would have been it was more of a surprise to me when she said she wanted to go forward with it then I would not have been surprised she said no you know in retrospect I don't know what I was thinking I write books by myself I don't need but no it was great and we really loved it when I say amicable split we had no dispute I mean it was just you know it didn't work out and she had a deadline she had to meet I wasn't available to do it I'm a professional she had to go to somebody else. And she happened to go to her son, but um, I totally understand. She could have gone to somebody else, and I wouldn't have been offended. Or because we all just have to get the work done. Yeah. It was a job, uh, separate from our friendship. Though our friendship had a lot to do with it. We had such a good time doing it together. It was such a fun. I think it strengthened our friendship, but it didn't hurt our friendship to to not do the books anymore. Doesn't mean I might not go back and do them in the future if, if it'll if the opportunity presents itself. That's just opportunity. I'm tied up till 2020, but <laughs> I think we're all tied up till 2020 under some type of regime right now. <laughs> well, I, I have the third book in the Ian Ludlow series to do, and I have a, a new book that comes out in the fall called Lost Hills, which is, starts a new series, and I have a second book in that series to do. So I literally have no opening for another book until 2020. Whether it's Jen who comes to me or Clive Kessler or James Patterson or Irv Schmelzer, you know. And how and how is it writing with like a gun to your head deadline compared to like uh, compared to just if you're working on something without a deadline, or do you ever not have a deadline? I love having a deadline. It, it's a great motivator. I have never missed a deadline in my life, even when I had two broken arms. Really, I've never missed a deadline. Um, I think there's a tendency when you don't have a deadline to 
engage in creative masturbation, just to sit there and find excuses, or just to be flummoxed by simple things. Should he come in the door and turn left or turn right? I think I'm done for the day. That's too much. You know, it's very easy to let little things. He's in a restaurant. Should he order a hamburger or a salad? I'm done for the day. It's just. But when you are, when you have a deadline, you have to just power through this stuff, and you can't worry about whether what you wrote was any good or not. You just move on. You go back and rewrite later. You just keep moving to get that deadline. And is there is there a part? I, well, I'm asking this because I'm fascinated with how our gut brain works and our your creativity works. Is there a part of it where you feel like? If you have that deadline, your left brain and your intellectual side is not telling you the no, no, that won't work because because some a lot of the times the gut is right when you're when you're working on story. Absolutely, I mean the the part of my brain that goes you're a fraud, you don't know what you're doing. That's a cliche. That's terrible. You suck. Shuts up for the most part when I'm on deadline, for the most part. Though I did I do remember a situation where I was writing a, a monk book and it was going great. And I mean, everything was just like flowing beautifully, and it's like, oh God, I'm good. I am so good. This is I'm such a professional. It, it it goes so smoothly, and it's almost like I don't even have to think. It just flows from my my inner muse to the page. And Antonomy, it's flowing so smoothly because I've written it before. I actually went back and realized I wrote this same scene five books earlier, or whatever. Oh. How do you keep track of that? Because you would almost have to. Do you have like a certain type of like chart or files or anything? I have no chart. It's just the other part of my brain finally went, wait a minute. It can't be this easy. It's never this easy. Something's wrong because I'd written it before. Do you find writing in the morning or in the afternoon? Do you have a, do you have a sweet spot on how you write? I absolutely, absolutely have a sweet spot. Um, my best writing hours are between 8 p.m. and 2 in the morning. That's when I write my best stuff. And I, so the perfect hours for me, and my brother Todd's exactly the same way, and my sister Karen's the same way, and she's not even a, uh, a writer. My sweet spot is go to bed at 2 in the morning, wake up at 10. And so when I'm in the groove, and I don't have book publicity to do and everything, I will get up in the morning at 10, have breakfast, 11 o'clock I'll sit down and read what I did the night before, and spend most of the day rewriting what I did the night before. Now I may be interrupted by... Other business, scripts I'm writing, you know, phone calls I have to answer, interviews I have to do, whatever, uh, galleys I have to prove for my books. But throughout the day, I'll be rewriting what I did the night before and handling other business. Then I have dinner, and 8 o'clock or so, I start writing original stuff. And I don't deal with anything else, any other business. I, I, I work on the book. Or if I'm on a script, I set the book aside, and that's when I work on, my, on a script if I have a deadline. I'm very deadline-driven. Obviously... I often will take on a script in the midst of writing a book, and sometimes I will set the book aside for a few weeks while I write a script because that's the more pressing deadline. Right. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I mean, because you're 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 like really living the writer's life, not smoking a pipe and having a puppy on your lap, but grinding. It's just you're grinding. Well, I do have the puppy on my lap. It's at my feet, but not on my lap. Um, and I don't drink alcohol, but I, dr- I go through a ton of Diet Coke. I hope they don't discover tomorrow that Diet Coke causes Alzheimer's or cancer or something, or I'm doomed. Um, but no, I, I, do, I am very lucky that I'm doing exactly what I dreamed of doing when I was a kid. Um, and I'm doing what I was doing when I was a kid. That's what I was doing. I was sitting at the, at the typewriter listening to TV themes, writing over-the-top action-adventure stuff. I'm doing the same thing now. So this segment of Drinks with Tony is brought to you by Diet Coke. Diet Coke. (laughs) Coke Zero. All the flavor, none of the calories. How many Diet Cokes do you drink a day? I'm not going to say. I know. I I probably drink, it's going to sound crazy, almost monkeying. And then I drink Diet Coke throughout the day. Maybe I'll have six or eight of them. I don't know. I have a lot of Diet Coke during the day. But at 6 o'clock, I shift from Diet Coke to Diet Shasta which has no caffeine, and so so I can go to bed. So I drink the caffeinated, I drink caffeined Diet Coke during the day, but at six I shift to decaffeinated. Now the Shasta just doesn't have the same taste, though, right? Actually, Shasta is wonderful. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. I, oh, I, you know what? I'm 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 misrepresenting myself. Let me let me correct that. I don't drink Diet Coke during the day. I drink Diet Shasta during the day, and at night I drink Diet Right. The Shasta 
has caffeine and it has uh, the, the sucralose. And at night, I have Diet Right, which has the sucralose and no caffeine. But sucralose, from what I understand, is better for you than NutraSweet or saccharin. So I intentionally sought out Diet Shasta, and I've developed a real taste for Diet Shasta. And Diet Right, I got onto because they still serve it at the uh, Malibu Seafood Company on PCH. I discovered it like you know, five, ten years ago. I'm like, oh my God! So now I I search out places in LA that still sell Diet Right. So that I can feed my uh, my addiction in the evenings. It's been harder and harder to find the diet right. I bet because I I don't think I've seen it uh, in my peripheral. It's it's probably not on eye level at the supermarket. It's probably like down. You can you can find it smart and final, um, not in the bottles anymore, only the cans. And you can find it at some Ralphs, but it's hard. And Shasta I can only find at Smart and Final or at the ninety nine cent store. I'm really glad you clarified that because journalism, journalism ethics is the high priority on this uh, podcast. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I didn't want to mislead you no. that I was drinking Diet Coke. Right, right. Though I'm drinking it now with bourbon in it because we are in a bar filled with bikers with yarmulkes. But otherwise, I, I drink just straight Diet Shasta. The bikers with yarmulkes has got it. I, I think that's, we, should, we should probably give Todd that book, I think. That's it. Well, I mean, you can see their leather jacket. They're the matzo balls. Uh, very vicious street gang. Yeah, yeah. Los Feliz Matzo Balls. <laughs> they're, they're tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, though, their motorcycles are Buicks. <laughs> Who knew the, they made a Buickless Saber motorcycle? Well, with Lee, we're going to end the show on that. Lee, thank you so much for hanging out, man. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Check out Lee Goldberg's latest novel, Killer Thriller, which is a sequel to his previous book, True Fiction. Yes, you can skip the first book and go straight to Killer Thriller, but you'd miss so many nuances that I highly suggest purchasing both books from independent publishers like Powell's in Portland, City Lights in San Francisco, Skylight in Los Angeles, and a bookstore in your town. And remember, my six-week online beginning novel course starts March 4th. Go to www.tonyduchesne.com to sign up. That's www.tonyduchesne.com. Hey, I'll see you next Wednesday. Have a great week.